Praise God. It's so good uh, to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. It's so good to see all of you here today. Last week, we actually, I, I think, sent, set a record since COVID of how many people are back. And praise God. I, I know it's been a, a crazy year, and we've been trying to navigate this together, and some of you have felt just safer being home for a season. I, I talked to someone last Sunday between the services and hadn't seen him for a while. I said, brother, it's so good to see you. And he just said, pastor, I'm done being afraid. I'm done living in fear. Amen. I want to encourage you. Uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Amen. I, I believe this. I, I just trust this, that God knows our first day and he knows our last day. Amen. And, and so we use wisdom, we use discernment, but uh, we should never operate out of a place of fear. Okay. And so as you come back together, uh, man, it's just good to be together uh, as the family of God. Scripture says we shouldn't neglect this, the gathering of the saints like this. We should come together. Well, we are continuing in a series on knowing God. You hopefully received an outline as you came through the door today. I hope you got that. I want to encourage you to take it out, pull out a pen or, or a pencil, okay? If you don't have one, maybe just slip up your hand. One of the ushers will get one to you. Maybe ushers, we could get a couple of those outlines just to people that need them. Uh, but grab a pen or a pencil, get ready. This week is a community group week, and so our community groups are going to be gathering together, and so encourage you uh, to take some good notes so that when you come together with your group, you got something to share, all right? Be prepared. Uh, before we dive into it today, let me just pray for us one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. Lord, we believe today that it is living and it's active, and so we approach it today Lord God, with reverence, we approach it today with an expectation, Lord, that you desire to speak to your people. And so, Holy Spirit, we just open our hearts to you right now and would set aside any distractions, any of our own ideas of what needs to happen after we leave this place. And we want to just give this time to you and ask that you would speak to us, that you would change us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. J.I. Packer writes these words in his book entitled Knowing God, tremendous book. He says this, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Powerful words, aren't they? Last week, uh, we began talking about God, and we said we're going to start at, at the very beginning, the foundation, which is the existence of God, because obviously that's step one, right? To answer the question, is there a God out there to be known? And so we talked about four arguments for the existence of God, the argument from creation, the argument from design, the argument from morality, and the argument of changed lives. Now, I don't have a time to go back into all those today. If you missed last week, I do want to encourage you to go back and listen. But basically, the conclusion of our time together last Sunday is that there is a God who created all that we see and that we know. We know that he intricately designed all of it, that he placed within each one of us a moral code so we know the difference between right and wrong. And he's actually at work in our lives right now, changing our hearts, changing those around us. And so even these arguments, I said last week, say something about the character of God. They tell us who he is, right? They tell us 
that he's powerful, that he is eternal, he has always existed, he is intelligent, he's a great designer, he's sovereign over all of creation, he's moral and he's good, and he loves us. And so I can stand here with some certainty today and say, yes, there is a God. Looking at Romans chapter 1, we saw that the Apostle Paul writes that in fact, he says this, there's really no real atheists in the world. He, he says in that chapter that what we can know about God has, is plain to us. It's visible. He says, man is without an excuse that there is a God. Basically, he's saying all men are aware of the fact that God exists, but some men suppress that truth. They know God exists, but they don't want to acknowledge his existence. And you might say this morning, well, why on the earth would would anyone suppress truth, right? Why would you hear truth and then suppress truth, especially that truth, right, that God exists? And here's the thing. If I recognize today that God created me and that he created me with a purpose and a design, then right away he becomes an authority in my life, right? And if he's an authority in my life, then I'm accountable to him and I'm accountable to understanding how he wants me to live, right? And so, so many people say, I don't want any authority over me. I'm ultimately the authority over my life. Scripturally, we understand there are no true atheists. However, there are many practical atheists in the world, and even in the church, who live as if God does not exist, even though they know deep down that he does. Yes, there are practical atheists, I would say, even in the church. It was Brennan Manning who wrote these words, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. And so last week, we just I just want to say we just kind of scratched the surface on the topic of the existence of God. If you want to know more, if you want to learn more, I put a book in the resources there on your note sheet today. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, okay, by Norman Geisler. Tremendous book if you want to go in depth and study more about the existence of God. Now, it's one thing to say that God exists. I want to say it's an entirely other thing to say that this God can be known. Do you know the difference between the term atheist and agnostic? I hope you do, right? An atheist says there is no God, again, even though deep down they, they know there is. However, an agnostic will recognize the existence of God and at the same time say, well, this God cannot really be known. Sure, he, he may exist, but there's no way to really know God. Which brings up the question, is it possible for us as humans to actually know this God? That's a good question, right? Paul prayed that his readers would know God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But how can anyone know God? Like, how can we grasp who he is? Like, isn't God an altogether different kind of being than we as humans? Doesn't he have an altogether different kind of existence? The the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 55, verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Is it possible to know an eternal God? Like how can our finite minds, think about it, grasp the infinite? How can our earthbound sight, right, we visualize even heaven. We think of heaven only in earthbound ideas. How can we who are time-bound grasp eternity except in terms of time, right? I mean, even Solomon said that God's works are incomprehensible. Ecclesiastes 8.17, he wrote these words. He says, I realize that no one can discover everything God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest person can discover everything, no matter what they claim. So that person that says, I got it all figured out, no. He's saying even the wisest person can't figure out everything that God is doing at this moment. Ecclesiastes 11.5, he writes, Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. It sounds here like the ways of God are incomprehensible, right? And in some ways, I would say they are. In a broad sense, we could say agnostics are committed to not rather believing in the existence or the non-existence of God. Agnostics uh, just say, man, there's no way that we can know him. And that's, that's a popular belief today. But the word of God makes it clear that God can be known, praise God, that we can know him, that we can have a relationship with the God of all creation. But who is this God? One popular approach to God in our society is what I would call build a God. It's kind of like build a bear. You ever been there before, right? I want that bear with that costume and and those shoes, right? And we can easily convince ourselves we know God if we supplement our in knowledge of God with our own imagination, right? If we build a God in our mind, we can base it on the way that we want God to be instead of the other way around. If it serves our purposes and our appetites to think of God in a, in a certain way, we are more likely to define God in that way so it will fit our purposes. Many today manufacture their own God. What's that called? It's idolatry, right? But so many create their own God based on their own judgments of what God should be like, right? And when we do that, we are expecting the God that we create to pass our approval or really to not be God at all. Building your own God is what idolatry is all about, and so many do that today. But understand, God is who he is, no matter how we perceive him. Names have meaning, don't they? And when you begin to know someone, the first thing you want to know is their name, right? Now, for thousands of years, Jewish people have prayed these words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. It's known as the Shema. Are you familiar with it? From Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Would you say it with me today? I think we have it on the screens. It's this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Here we have the name of God. If you look in your Bibles, it's written in all capital letters, Lord, right? This is the personal name of God, the God of Israel. But, but where do we find the meaning of this name? We first learn of it in the story of Moses and, and the burning bush. You know the story. Moses is out uh, attending to his flock, and he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not burning up, and so he goes over to check it out. And through that bush, God appears to Moses, and 
speaks to him and says, Moses, I want you to deliver my people from Egypt. I want you to deliver my people from slavery in Egypt. And Moses goes through this conversation, and then he, he says to God, he says, well, what if the people ask your name? Like, what if they ask, like, who sent me? That's a good question, right? Well, there was this bush, and, you know, I heard a voice, right? But he says, what is your name? And, and God responds to Moses. He says, tell them, eh, yeah, eh, yeah, has sent me to you. Now, the Hebrew words, eh, yeah, means I will be. In other words, God's name means he is the one who is and who will be. In other words, God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. This God, he simply is. However, it would kind of sound strange, right, if Moses said to the people, I will be has sent me to you, right? That wouldn't work too well. Only God can say, I will be. And so in the next sentence, God tells him the version that he should say aloud. It's Yahweh, the God of our ancestors. He's sent me to you. Yahweh is the ancient Hebrew form of the verb, he will be. And this is the personal name of God that we see in the Old Testament. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Moses said, Yahweh, your God is a consuming fire. He also said, know therefore the Lord, Yahweh, he is your God. And here's what we need to know about Yahweh, first of all. Rather than being a chameleon who changes his colors to match ours, God acts powerfully in our interest, but in his own way and in his own time. And so even with these identifiers, do we know God as, as he wants to be known? Some might say, well, maybe if I could see God, if I could just see him, then, then I could know him. 1 Timothy 6, 16 uh, says this, that, that he dwells in unapproachable light. Speaking of God, he dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. God told Moses, Moses no one can see me and live. But Job expected to see God. Job 19, verse 26, he says, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, what? See God. Understand today, God is seen. God is seen, but he's seen in a different way than we see one another. God is seen through the eyes of faith. Someone might say, well, I have some questions for God, right? If, if only he would answer my questions, then maybe I would recognize him as God. Can we question God? Well, you know, Job wanted to question God, right? I encourage you to, to listen to the story of Job, to read the story of Job. He said this, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job's only offense in his entire story was to call on God for an answer. All that he's going through, Job says, I want to know why. 
Can you tell me why I'm suffering like I'm suffering? Can you tell me why all this suffering is, is a part of my life? God, why are you causing this? Or why are you allowing all of this suffering? And yet it was so important for Job not to know the answer to why God was doing what God was doing. Someone might say, I just want to understand God. Well, I would tell you today, there is a great difference. If you're following them notes here, there is a great difference between understanding all of God's thoughts and actions and knowing God. You know that today? There's a great difference between understanding all of his thoughts and all of his actions and actually knowing him. I've lived with my wife for 22 years now, and I, I know a lot about her, okay? And yet I'll be honest today, sometimes I don't understand her. <laughs> right? But I love her deeply. I trust her with my life. Now, let's be real. Would any of you married men claim to always understand your wife? If you're, at, you're a liar if you say that, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. You don't have to understand everything your wife does to know her and to love her. And you don't have to understand everything that God does to know God and to love God. In fact, you will never understand everything God does, at least this side of eternity. But you can know him and you can love him and you can trust him with your life because his ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are greater than our thoughts. Sometimes I think the questions of life actually get in the way of knowing. Ancient Athens was the world's center of knowledge and understanding and philosophy. And yet with all their thinking, the philosophers in Athens could not understand God. And so they made an inscription on the Acropolis that said, To the unknown God, right? It's a God out there, but he's unknown. You see, through all of their great philosophy, they said, we can't know God. They considered him unknown and probably believed he's unknowable. They, they were what we would call agnostics today. But Paul spoke to them at Mars Hill. It was recorded in Acts chapter 17, if you want to turn there. Acts chapter 17. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 17. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He says, guys, listen, I, I see you're very religious, but you say God can't be known. He says, let me tell you about who this God is. God can be known. And in about a minute of speaking, he, he makes known God to the philosophers of that day. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. He says, here's the deal. He gave them a place to live and a time to live out. And the, the whole idea of them being here is that they would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet he is actually not far off from each one of us. Isn't that good news today? That the God who created all of this, he's not far off today. He says, for in him we live and move 
and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, that he's an image formed by the art and the imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who is that? Who's the man he's appointed? Jesus. Come on, nine times out of ten, that's the right answer in church, right? It's Jesus. He's appointed Jesus as this judge. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man. Who is it? Jesus. Raising him from the dead. Think about this. Some of the greatest philosophers in Paul's day say, God's unknown. We can't even know him. Now, now why did they come to this conclusion? Why did so many in our society come to that same conclusion? Because they mistakenly think that knowing God is only an academic and philosophical experience, right? But there's a great difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. And we can become very accomplished, I think, at knowing doctrine, which is good, because it allows us to, to spot false teaching. That's good. That's well. However, interest in theology... And knowledge about God is not the same thing as actually knowing him. There's a difference between knowing some or even knowing a lot about God and actually knowing God. Eve knew about God and yet she sinned, right? You know the story, the the serpent took advantage of her knowing a little about God but not really knowing God. I mean, get this, she knew God, she even walked with God, but she didn't really know his character. Because Satan comes in and he brings this lie, right? This lie of Satan that that God is somehow holding out on her. And it's the same lie that the enemy still tells today. God is holding out on you. God's rules are keeping you from actually knowing life. Grab the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. It's a lie. We can know God and know his character. And we begin to know his character. We know he's not holding out on us. No, instead he's come to give us wholeness of life. The rules and the things he lays out before us are ultimately so that we would know the abundance of life as we walk according to his plan and his purpose. Listen, unless you really know God and you know his character and you know his love, you will fall into that same trap of the enemy. Pharaoh knew something about God. He watched God bring the plagues on Egypt, right? He knew about God, but he didn't know God, and he rebelled against God's command. But Moses knew God. The Canaanite nations knew about God. They fought against Joshua and the Israelites as they came into the land. They knew about God, but Joshua actually knew God. Nebuchadnezzar knew about God. He saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were saved in that fiery furnace, but these three Hebrews... They actually knew God and therefore would not bow down and worship an idol. King Darius knew about God because of Daniel, right? Daniel in the lion's den, he was saved from the mouths of lions. Darius knew something about God, but Daniel actually knew God. And because he knew God, he was not going to obey the king's decrees, right? He was going to pray to God regardless of what the king said. In Jesus' time, it was the scribes and the Pharisees who had this vast knowledge about God, and yet they were the ones that were constantly rebuked by Jesus, right? He would constantly rebuke them because 
here's the thing. They could have known God himself, but they chose to keep their attention on all the things they supposed about God. Listen to me. Let's not presume that knowing much about God, while in and of itself is a worthwhile pursuit, let's not presume that, that, presume that by virtue of that knowledge that we know God. And so before we go any further in this journey together as a church, we need to ask ourselves a question. It's a question, a few questions we should ask ourselves whenever we embark on the study of Scripture, whenever we open up the Word of God. Here's two questions. What is my aim in occupying my mind with theology? Like, what, why, why am I doing this, right? And here's the other question. What do I intend to do with my knowledge about God once I have it? Right? Sometimes we're gaining knowledge just for, for knowledge's sake, but what do we intend to do with the things that we learn about God? Because here's the reality. If we pursue theological knowledge only for its own sake, things will go bad for us, okay? It will make us proud. It will make us conceited. J.I. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God, he says, to be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end in itself, to approach Bible study, with no higher a motive than a desire to know all the answers is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. Paul told the Christians in Corinth, he said this, he said, we all know all of us possess knowledge, right? He says, all of us possess knowledge. And he says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, listen to this, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Wow. This is all this knowledge, it, it's just going to puff you up. If you're just seeking knowledge for knowledge's sake to win a debate and talk someone down, you're going to become a conceited, arrogant person. But if you love God, think about this, you're actually known by God. Let's be honest, knowledge about God can be pursued for selfish reasons. Some, some great preachers, teachers, communicators have stood on some stages and pontificated about God for selfish reasons. To increase their name, to increase their fame, to increase their wealth. Now hear me, this is not to say that ignorance about God is an advantage to knowing him. No, ignorance of God or a false idea of who God is, that's just as much a roadblock to knowing God. In fact, we can easily convince ourselves we know God when our knowledge is so often fragmented and, and flawed. If we look at God through the wrong end of a telescope, we will see a very small God, not a, not a large and a powerful God. If we look at God... From a distance, we will see a God who is remote and detached and has no relevancy in our lives. And, and all of these distorted views present a very changeable God who conforms to our wishes but does not meddle in our lives when we just want to be left alone. We must gain a knowledge about God to know him. And I would say this, there is no spiritual hell without doctrinal knowledge. Right? We need the word of God. We need to understand the doctrine of who God is in order to have spiritual health. But it, it's just as true that there could be no spiritual health if that knowledge is pursued for the wrong purpose. Right? Again, if we're seeking that knowledge just to be, man, I'm going to win this debate. I'm going to talk that guy down. It's going to be awesome. Right? 
Now, what have I done this morning? I argued against knowing about God in favor of knowing God. No, understand this. We must know what we can learn about God to know God. But we've seen that, though related, the two are different. Knowing about God may or may not lead to knowing God. If you know the things Paul taught the philosophers in Athens, we will be like the philosophers on Mars Hill, and we will either worship or we will ignore this unknown God. Or like today's agnostics, we would say, you know what, that's, that's good, but really God is unknowable. I want to say this today, we can learn a lot about God by studying his word. I hope you're following along on the back of the note sheet you have today. There is, for this week, a characteristic of God. And there's, there's five, seven verses total, one verse a day to, to reflect on and say, well, what does this verse say about God's character in my life? And then the last two of the seven are, what does this mean for me, right? How do I apply this into my life? We can learn a lot about God by studying his attributes, by studying his deity, his unchangeableness, his majesty, his wisdom, his omniscience, he is all-knowing, right? His truthfulness, his faithfulness, his love, his power, his eternal nature, his goodness, his severity, his jealousy, his wrath even, his grace, knowledge of who God is and what can be known of his attributes is a wonderful, profitable pursuit. I encourage you, chase after it. As long as acquiring that knowledge doesn't become an end in itself, like those Paul wrote to in, in 2 Timothy 3.7, he says there were those who were always learning and never able to arrive at a full knowledge of the truth. Wow. <laughs> Always learning, but never able to arrive at the full knowledge of the truth. Listen, knowledge about God is a start to know God, but that fruit will rot on the vine if it doesn't lead to a true knowledge of God himself. And so we always need to ask the question, what do I intend to do with my knowledge about God once I've got it? Am I going to sit on it until that debate comes up? Man, I'm going to win that thing, right? Understand our goal in studying God's attributes must be more than to learn a list of attributes, but to know God better. Our concern ought to be to, to deepen our intimacy, not just with the doctrines, but with a living God <laughs> who those attributes are actually about. The goal in studying things about God is ultimately to be led to God himself. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied of a time that everyone could know God. And, and here's the thing, we live in that time today. Jeremiah 31, 34, he says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. God was, was talking about, he, he was saying, there's a time when they will all know me. Understand, this prophecy is about Jesus. Jesus would make all of the difference. This new covenant in Christ's blood would be a very different kind of covenant than the one that was made on Mount Sinai. And he's not saying there literally will be no more teaching. That's not what he's saying. That's not what this verse is saying. Instead, it's saying that God would not be best known by studying volumes and volumes of information apart from knowing Jesus. No, God would be known by Christ himself, who is God revealed to us. Jesus is the clearest revelation of God. God is best known 
through the picture we have of Jesus. Jesus said, if, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? John 14, chapter, uh, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have also known my Father. Wow, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And, and Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. He's missing it, right? He says, just show us the Father, and it's enough. Sound familiar? Like, we just say, Jesus, just let me see God. Like, just let me, like, see him. And, and then, then I'll believe, and then I'll understand. And Jesus said to him, he said, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. First John 5.20, it says this, and we know that the Son of God has come. And he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. Wow. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal life. Listen, this knowledge of God through Jesus is what led Paul to say, I count everything as lost, right? I count it all as lost to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And here's the good news today. For, for those of you that are like me, here's the good news today. Knowing God is not dependent on a high IQ. Anybody thankful for that today? <laughs> I don't need to have the highest IQ to know God. Knowing God involves learning, but knowing God is not first and foremost an intellectual pursuit. I, I thank God for the early church fathers, right? through the ages, some exceptional minds in the church. There are many who have captured so wonderfully great thoughts about God, and and we're blessed. That's a gift for us to read those thoughts that are expressed so well. I I love to immerse myself in some of those old writings. But in the end, I, I do not know God today because of those great minds. Listen, a person with modest intellect and education is at no disadvantage to know God. And in fact, they may know God as intimately as a professor with all the advanced degrees, right? That has all the knowledge. Psalm 19.7, David said this, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Praise God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Jesus said, unless you become like Little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about children in years, but in understanding to whom God is pleased to reveal the truths of the gospel when he hides them from some of the wise and the learned. Though we can't see God today, and we can't ask him all the questions that we want to ask him or hear all those answers We we can study him, we can understand him through his word, we can know him. And I want to say this, knowing God is a priceless treasure. Romans 11.33 says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Let us say, as Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10, he wrote these words, he says, I want to know Christ. And experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. He says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things, or that I have already reached perfection. 
but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. I tell you, church, knowing God is a priceless treasure, and this treasure can be yours. This treasure can be yours. We're going to talk over the next two weeks about how we know God through relationship and, and through his word, but this knowledge of God, I want to tell you, it first of all needs to start with the right motive. It needs to start with us checking our hearts, okay? Mark verse 12, Mark 12, verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 28, if you want to turn there. I want to read this as, as we move to close. It says that one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He says, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other beside him. And, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw, he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom said, so with this understanding, you're, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I love that. <laughs> Nobody's going to ask him anything else. Would you stand with me today as we close? Oh, that the Lord would take us back. Amen? That he would take us back to that greatest commandment as the worship team comes and we move to close today. Understand, Jesus is talking with this scribe, this Pharisee, this learned man who, who knew a lot. He knew a lot. He said, what's the greatest commandment? Just give me that one because I want to make sure I don't miss that one, right? And Jesus takes him back to the Shema. I want you to know today, our aim in understanding and, and studying the Godhead must be to know God better. Our concern must be to grow not simply in our knowledge of doctrine, but to grow in our relationship with the living God. Ultimately, our knowledge of God ought to lead us to love him more, to love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength. Amen. May, may that be true in our lives and in our church.